Well, we'll continue our series this week, uh, the Walk This Way series on stuff that matters Monday morning, every day, ordinary type of faith. But I must say this, after several of you approached me in the foyer on Sunday last week, no, no, I did not know. I did not know that Walk This Way was a rock and roll Aerosmith hit from 1975. <laughs> that was, I was negative nine that year, in fact, so uh, uh, I didn't know that was a song. Um, no clue whatsoever. I, so I guess that's what happens when you let two 30-somethings pastors without a deep knowledge of rock and roll history name things without, a, you know, uh, without asking the Google. You should always ask the Google, right? So I uh, do not feel the need to look that song up because it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. All right? Don't do it. Well, what we are talking about today is what it means to follow Jesus and what that has to do with my everyday, ordinary, Monday morning kind of life. You know, we have this tendency, like we talked about last week, when we face these ethical dilemmas, like what is right and what is wrong, to focus on the choice itself, like what's the right choice? And we end up sliding up and down this ethics spectrum, you know, the, the ought to's, the black and white, the, the prescriptive, everybody should do this thing this way, right? All the way down to the just live and let live, the everything is gray, you don't know me, you don't know my life type thing, just follow your heart, which I made pretty clear is a wildly irresponsible thing to do, so never do that, please, if it's anything like mine. But the whole, the whole what's the right choice question is the wrong starting point altogether. The question that we need to ask is who am I? And how does that shape what I do? The starting point is not the choice. It's not the dilemma. The starting point is our identity, namely as a chosen child of God called forth in to resurrection life. You see, focusing on our vision, on our identity in Christ kind of like what the Hebrews author says, fixing our eyes on Jesus shifts the conversation entirely. And so instead of focusing on a list of to-dos, a more helpful practice, honestly, is, is answering those questions we talked about last week, the, particularly the, the first three. Will this choice move me closer to or further away from Jesus? Will this choice ultimately make, ultimately make me more free? or less free? Will it open me up to addiction or slavery? Will this choice cause me to rely on anything more than Jesus? Now, those are the questions we need to be asking. But you know, they, these questions, they aren't some magical litmus test, but rather they're meant to shape us over time to see in order that our vision might be shaped in such a way that we see every choice we make, not as some individual self-directed decision, but rather every choice we make as a reflection or an embodiment of our identity in Jesus. But there's more to consider this week, more to consider than just the Jesus and me angle, isn't there? Remember last week we talked about freedom. And freedom from that cursed spectrum that steals life instead of gives it. True freedom, remember, is not independence, being all by myself, but true freedom is being rightly related. Rightly related and rightly living into our true identity. Rightly embracing who we are and therefore rightly living into that new name of Christian. But the call to freedom... The call to being rightly related goes, just be, goes beyond just the relationship, relationship between God and me. It extends to the body of Christ as well. Because living in true freedom and walking in the way of Jesus has implications for my relationship with you and you with me. 
because my identity is wrapped up with you. Not because I'm your pastor, because I'm your sister in Christ. And your identity is wrapped up in me. We are a body. Without you, there is not a me. You know, and that kind of makes us a little squirmy as Americans, doesn't it? The idea that uh, making a choice or living a certain way or choosing a specific habit that I am somehow obligated to consider you, like I'm accountable to you, well, that's just inconvenient. And frankly, it's none of your business, right? I know that sounds super sassy from the pulpit, but I know you've thought it. We all have to a certain extent because that's the norm of our culture is that it's not your business. As long as what I'm doing isn't hurting you, then back off. That's the norm of our culture. But is that the way of Jesus? Is that the culture of the kingdom of God of which we are now citizens? So we're going to head back to Corinth today to explore this. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And a full disclosure, at first glance, this particular scripture is one of those classic examples of a biblical text that at first glance seems to have absolutely no bearing on your everyday life whatsoever. And when, you, when I read it, you'll understand why. But stick with me, okay? And I'm reading from a different version today. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I just think it conveys the message just really clearly. So uh, you can follow along on the screen if you want to follow that version. Okay? Verse 1. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about the issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Told you, kind of weird. Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god. There's only one god. There are so there are those there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us there is one god the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things are created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some, some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of the real God and their weak consciences are violated. Now it's true, we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful that your freedom doesn't cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you, you with your superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for who Christ died is going to be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging to do something that they believe is wrong, you're sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another member, another person to stumble, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Meat. Meat. <laughs> that is the earth-shattering issue that Paul 
takes the time to write about in this letter in the church to Corinth. Meat. You know, and it's really hard for us to get it with this particular text because we don't live in that world. So long story short, in a part of the worship of the gods of those cities that we talked about last week involved presenting meat to idols as an offering. So imagine us passing the plates and instead of throwing in an offering, an o- like an envelope with your tithe check, you throw in some steaks, right? You would have to have some very buff ushers by the time it's all said and done to carry the meat forward to the uh, altar. So some of that meat is cooked and actually served in the temple, right? Kind of like a pagan potluck, I guess. And then some of it is sent off to the marketplace where it is sell- it is sold to just like regular old Joe Schmells like us, right? And so at some point, almost all of the meat that was available for them to eat in the market had been offered to an idol. And so therein lies the dilemma. There are these Christians with this knowledge, those who get it, who understand that idols aren't gods. They were made by people. They are powerless objects. They are worthless in every way. So there is absolutely no reason I should not eat this delightful steak in front of me. Just because somebody lifted it up to a statue once, whatever. Knowledge is freedom. Show me the beef. I am free. I will eat it. Right? But then there's these other folks in the local church for whom the issue is not quite so clear. Perhaps they were recently converted, and up until a couple weeks ago, this whole offering meet up to an idol, that did have a lot of meaning, deep meaning. And now they're trying to figure out how to walk this way of Jesus, how to follow in the footsteps of their Savior. They want to cut ties with that former way of life, including the whole idol meet thing. Because they're idols, and they're trying to avoid those, Right? They aren't Jesus. And so for them, the knowledge that the idols are meaningless, it hasn't given them the freedom to eat what they want. And so their spirits are like eh, really unsettled about the issue. They're struggling. And apparently this was becoming an issue in the church, enough of an issue that Paul addresses it directly. And it feels like an impasse, like, like there is no way forward. Like how do we, how do we navigate this? One group says it's okay because idols aren't real. And they are so insistent about living out their freedom by eating that meat. Like, I'm going to stick it to that idol by having a barbecue type attitude, okay? But then there's this other group, and they are so offended. They are so hurt. They are so confused and unsettled because in their eyes, eating that meat is a participation in a life they left behind. They want to cut ties with that. And so they at this impasse where it seems like there's no way forward in this church. What kind of compromise can actually be made? You know, it's kind of like, like a shopping cart showdown. <laughs> have you ever been like on a really narrow aisle and you come up to somebody and they have their cart and you're right there, you're like, I ain't moving, right? Better move your cart aside if you're feeling real cranky and you want to get your cereal and go home. Then you're like, whatever. It's like an impasse. There's no way to move forward unless somebody is going to give a little. And that's really hard. And a shopping cart, that's a, that's a silly example. But experiencing an honest-to-goodness impasse in a relationship isn't silly. It's painful. Like those disagreements you have with your spouse where you both have such different ideas about the right path forward and no amount of talking it out is getting you to your common destination. And it feels like an impasse. Like, guys, it's a dead end. This is a wall. Or maybe a major conflict at work where you and your boss or you and your coworkers, you have such a a different understanding of what needs to happen and how. And it feels like a dead end, hopeless even. A showdown, like, who's going to give? Who's going to surrender? 
I ain't moving. Right? And you'd think Paul, being the awesome pastor that he is, would be able to offer up a way out of that impasse, right? A compromise, like a deal of some sort, in which both parties can give a little and get a little. And you'd think, you'd think, if he was really the skilled pastor, that skilled shepherd, he'd be able to smooth over those ruffled feathers. You know what I'm talking about, those ruffled feathers in the church pew. Smooth them down and talk everybody off the ledge to negotiate to broker a deal. Like, what's it going to take, guys? Ballpark it for me. How many stakes are we talking about here? But he doesn't. He doesn't suggest, hey, let's have a meatless Mondays for them, and let's have a barbecue Thursday for the other crowd that really wants to, you know, eat that meat. No, he doesn't offer this compromise. Why? Because meat is not the issue. In the same way as we talked about last week, where the main thing, it's not my choices, but my identity, it's the same thing this week. The issue is not the menu, and it's not even the ethical implications beneath the menu because they both, both sides have some really valid points. The actual issue is, who are we? Who are we as the people of God trying to walk the way of Jesus? And what on earth does our corporate identity as the body of Christ have to do with Monday, with what I eat, with what I do? And instead of giving them a to-do list, prescribing them a specific path forward, or telling everybody, oh, just follow your heart and see how that works out, Paul takes a different tack altogether. He acknowledges what they're saying. He's like, guys, you're right. I get it. Idols aren't real. I know. And I get it. God doesn't really care what we eat. You are right. You have the right information. But then he takes a turn and he throws out this thing that seems kind of random. He says, guys, Idols aren't real, but but for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. Now, if we have ears to hear, we'll hear that this isn't just some random theological tidbit that Paul throws out. Paul is actually reciting the Shema a modified Shema, but the Shema nonetheless. Now, if you don't know, the Shema was like the heart of worship for the people of Israel. It was what they would pray every day. They would say, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And that Shema, it declared the uniqueness of God. It declared God's sovereignty. It said, God, you are creator of all things. And in that passage right after in Deuteronomy, it says, in light of all this, in light of the Shema, in light of who God is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind. Based on who God is, live this way. Lives completely devoted to God. And so Paul grasps hold of that, that that, that heart of that Shema, and he reminds his readers of this truth, but then he takes the threads of that Shema tapestry and he continues to weave them into the story of God, into this, this new thing that God is doing in the person of Jesus. He says, yeah, there is one God, one, there are no idols, God is creator, God is sovereign, and there is one Lord, Jesus And it is through Jesus that we have life. It is through Jesus that we know the way to walk. And so Paul is saying, based on who God is and how he has revealed himself in Jesus, you are called to walk like him, like Jesus. Now, 
Mark, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus was talking to one of the scribes, you know, one of those religious leaders, and they were kind of trying to catch Jesus in a trap like they do, trying to prove that he wasn't of God. And they said to Jesus, they said, if you're really who you would say you are, you'll know the answer to this. What's, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, without even a pause, says, well, the first is this, hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And he says, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus makes it clear to walk like him, to be faithful to the uttermost is to love God and love people. You might have heard that sometime, maybe, if you read the wall over there. But it's not just some slogan for our wall. Jesus-type love for people is different than that, just lovey-dovey, heartwarming, like kumbaya type stuff. And it's not just helping people out or doing nice things or being helpful. It's not even just about encouragement and being positive. But it's not a doing at all. It's not a bunch of behaviors. Jesus-shaped Jesus love is a way of being in the world that starts from within, that pours itself out. And I'm just going to read scripture because it says it better than I ever could. The way of being that Jesus modeled. Let's just read it. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And here's the kicker. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. He humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, the Jesus way of loving, of walking, that to which Paul is calling the church in Corinth, is this kind of walking. This pouring yourself out for the other. Looking not to your own interests, not to your own agenda, not to your own lifestyle, not even your own conscience, but with care and concern, looking to the life of the other, to the body of Christ. To walk the way of Jesus is to lay down the knowledge even when you're right in favor of love. To walk the Jesus way is to abandon that me-focused religion in favor of love for the church, for the body. You know, Paul tells the church, he says, guys, knowledge is great, it is good to have all the right answers. But knowledge on its own, it, it puffs up. Having all the right answers and having such an assurance of knowing, it's kind of like hot air in a balloon. It puffs up, but it's not really good for much. It's fragile, it's volatile, it's short-lived. But love, love builds up. And love builds something that lasts. In fact, love is the way not just to know, but to be known truly by God. And love will outplay knowledge every time, even when you're right. Love understands 
that being right is a whole lot less important than embodying that Jesus love to our sisters and our brothers. And hear this, and this is hard. Love does not sacrifice the spiritual well-being of my brother or sister on the altar of my personal freedom. Just because I can doesn't mean I should if it hurts them. Love, like Paul says in verse 9, does not place such a high value on my personal freedom that we will carelessly cause our sister and our brother to stumble. It's not worth it. It's not love. Let's bring this down to earth for a minute, shall we? Now, some of you have been Nazarenes your whole life. I'm fourth generation, in fact, is in my blood. If you cut me open, I will bleed Phineas F. Brzee. <laughs> and some of you are like, Phineas who? What? You don't know what Nazarene is, and that's okay. God brought us together to form this kind of quirky family that we are. But we have a really interesting story about how we came to be a denomination. See, back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the spirit was on the move in kind of a unique way among Jesus followers. People were sensing this desire, this, this calling to something beyond just being saved from sin. They wanted to be saved for something, for this life of holiness, to be set free from slavery to sin and give themselves fully over to God. And so in various parts of the country, in the West and in the East and in the South, all these people were forming these churches of holiness, of of, of following after Christ with their entire being. And if we would have had Facebook, the merger would have gone a lot quicker. But at that point, you know, letters was the thing. And so eventually people start to realize, oh my word, we're like, we're like doing the same thing. We should like get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you and I combine? And get together and do this. And so in 1907, Phineas F. Brzee, he's out west in California, he joins with the brothers and sisters in the east, and bam, they form what is called at the time the Pentecostal Church, the Nazarene. Did you know that? We had Pentecostal in our name for a while. We got rid of that. <clears throat> it was a little confusing. And then in 1908, so we have this united thing, and then in 1908, they're like, you know what, down in the south, they're doing the same thing. And if we could partner together, man, we could do good work for the kingdom. Let's do it. And so in 1908, they go down to Pilot Point, Texas, uh, to, to, to hopefully to merge. And as is always the case with the merger, there were challenges like polity, like how do we do stuff, and leadership, like who's in charge, and doctrine, what do we believe about this? But there were a couple other elements that needed to be considered as well, namely heritage and lifestyle differences. Now, first and foremost, we've got ourselves some Yankees and some Southerners. And this was less than 50 years after the Civil War. There were Civil War vets sitting there, folks. And they're saying, we're going to be in a church with them? Are you serious? God is calling us to be one church? I don't, I don't know if I can. But there were other differences as well that looking back seemed kind of petty, but they were not. They were everyday, ordinary issues, and they were very divisive. You see, Brzee's church, he was from out west. He was in California, and you know how those Californians are. Liberals, right? I hate that word because it has so much political baggage, but basically they just had a different, they lived into their freedom in Christ in a different way. Mixed bathing. <gasps> oh, my word, right? That was part of their life. They had potlucks on the beach, okay? But then we have our brothers and sisters from maybe like the South, like Oklahoma and Texas, and they're like, mixed bathing? I don't think so. That is not the way of Jesus, my friends, right? 
and they have some very specific conflicts and understandings of what Jesus' life looks like. And so I know, obviously, I'm painting with a really broad brush here, and there were always exceptions, but the point, you get the point. There were differences in values and in practices, and they understood differently what it meant to walk in the full freedom of Christ. And while there was others that were still struggling with, like, what's appropriate and what's compromise and how do we do this faithfully? And they said, you know, God is calling us to be one body, to be united with this message of holiness. But what about the meat? What about the stuff that's dividing us? But remember, the question is not, what's the right choice, meat or no meat, mixed bathing or no? The question is, Who are we as the people of God? Who are we as those who have been called to embody that self-giving, self-pouring out love of Jesus? And what does that have to say to our life together? Can the love of God get us past the impasse? Simply put, what will we give up for love? Well, 1936, the king of England gave up his crown to marry someone not thought worthy. My great-grandmother gave up her U.S. citizenship when she married my grandpa because that was the law at the time and he wasn't a citizen yet. A husband will joyfully, joyfully give up his man cave (laughs) for a nursery that is needed. Joyfully. And a wife will give up her perfectly clean house for the love of her children's messy, joy-filled playing. Parents give up their solitude and all of their money for the love of the children. (laughs) It changes your life. And every day I give up half my breakfast for love of Jack, who always seems to want what I'm having. I'm starving to death, people. (laughs) But it's true. What do we give up for love? What will we give up for love? Even when we're right, even when we have the right answers, the right knowledge, what will we give up for love to build something that will last? Now, in the case of the Nazarene merger, a choice had to be made. Will we allow the work of God to wither among us because of meat? Will we allow this radical movement of the Spirit to be stilled for pride of knowledge and insight? Or will we love? Will we lay down our rights for our sisters and brothers? Will we lay down our insistence upon our Christian freedoms for the love of the other? Now, toward the end of their time together, and that was in October, Phineas F. Brzee got up to preach, and this is what happened. It says, the sermon was followed by the Lord's Supper in which the fire that had been kindled during that open address burst into a halo of glory. All of the delegates were from California and they were from New York and from Texas and from Canada with spirits so perfectly blended into one that anybody looking in could immediately recognize they were brothers and sisters and they had a common unifying agency. Here was a reenacted Pentecost with all filled with the Holy Ghost. And a spirit of unity was generated through the sermon and the sacrament, and it led to harmony and compromise in the committee work that followed. And, and hear this, this is good. Committed to uniting the church. Committed to love above knowledge. 
Brzee secured concessions from the Southerners and from his own group. And on October 13th at 10.40 in the morning, the vote to merge the denominations was taken, followed by scenes of great joy and a hallelujah march around the tent. Woo! I love looking at this picture because, you know, they look kind of angry in the photo, but man, their hearts were so full of joy. God had done a work. God had broken through that impasse. They had hit a wall, and they were not going forward. And when the Spirit of God descended upon them, they were able to lay aside their rights for the sake of love. And as we continue to ask the question, how do we walk this way? How do we walk this way of Jesus? Paul is asking us to pause and to set aside the what's the right choice for me question again and instead ask, who are we? Who are we, the people of God, the people who are called to embody love? And how is that identity rooted in my Jesus-shaped love shape what I do? And so here's my question, and it's a tough one. Am I willing to persist in any choice or behavior or habit? Because I'm free in Christ and I can do that. Even if it's hurting the faith of my sister or brother in Christ. Am I more concerned with living out my freedom in Christ than I am with the soul of my faith family? Well, N.T. Wright offers us kind of this tool, if you would. Not a checklist like always, but another tool, a lens through which to look at our choices in light of this call to self-sacrificing Jesus-shaped love instead of insisting on our rights or our Christian freedom. He says this. He says, insisting on one's rights, even our rights as a Christian, our Christian freedom, is a sign that something other than the true God is being worshipped. And so when you look at my life, when you look at our life together, What does our life show that we're truly worshiping? Are we insisting on our rights to the detriment of someone else's soul? True worship, as Jesus taught us, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all our soul and with all our minds and with all our strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Love outplays the right answer Every time. And so as we learn to live together, as these Jesus followers, if we have to choose between being loving and being right, let's be loving. Because Jesus-shaped, self-pouring out love will be our faithful guide. It will not lead us astray. Knowledge, being right, puffs us up. But love, Build something that will last. May it be so among us. Father God, we thank you for your good word to us today. And it's a hard word, Lord. It's hard. Because we've been so wired to function so independently. But Lord, you have called us to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves, the body of Christ. And in this place, love is supreme. Not knowledge and not freedom, not even being right. Lord, may it be so among us that we are governed not by knowledge that puffs up, but by love that builds something that can last. May we not 
become slaves even to our freedom. But may we be willing to lay all things aside, all things for the sake of the beloved, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we trust that you don't call us to something that you will not empower us to do. And so we just rest in your promise. Trust that you will enable us to do that which you have called us to. So Lord, hear our prayer and make it so among us, your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Beloved, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church. May you go from this place with your identity securely rested in Christ and intertwined with the body of believers. And as you seek to live a life of faithfulness, may we all be willing to choose love over being right every time so that love might build something that will last among us. Go in action. Go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.